1: Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks movie podcast. Show me El Fauno! El Fauno, that's right. I am Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Hey, everybody. And joining us once again, we have the beautifully bearded Michael Burns. Hey, friends. Glad to be here. And the beautifully shouldered today. Look at that. It's too
0: hot. It's just too hot. And fashion doesn't matter. And yes, if you're watching this my disgusting hairy pale shoulders are
1: showing i apologize is that a tie-dyed um singlet there that you were rocking yeah it is it is yeah yeah yin, yin just, yang really, yin yang are yeah. wow well it, someone's well, been has the, the, the yeah. greek
0: or the roman numerals for six and nine inside of there as well <laughs> Because a yin-yang is technically two things 69 in each other.
1: That's Look at layers so, of meaning. To, to be,
0: yeah. I came to bring the intellect today, so let's go. Looking <laughs> forward to the philosopher reacts to your shirt.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this week we're going to be talking about the instant classic, written, directed, d- devised, inspired by the brilliant mind of Guillermo del Toro pan's labyrinth or in spanish it's a laberinto del fauno it stars ivana baquero C- sergi lopez maribel verdu doug jones and ariadne hill um as always we'll go around and we'll do first impressions what was it like the first time we saw this film how has this film lasted with us on repeated viewings what's it like revisiting it let's start with the guest this week michael what are your uh, initial thoughts what was it like the first time that you saw pan's labyrinth
0: Well, so as anyone who has heard me on this podcast before, heard me talk about movies knows, I have an aversion towards spooky and scary things. I'm not proud of it, but it is true, and I'm at least honest with it as an adult. Um, Because of that, I have not really kept up with Guillermo del Toro's movies, and I had never seen this movie before. So I knew a lot about it, um, you know, from participating in the cultural discourse, listening to too many podcasts, and reading stuff. Hadn't seen it, didn't know what to expect, watched it for the first time. Really enjoyed it overall with the few instances where when there was uh, what I described to Raymond before I went on his specific violence, I, I averted my eyes a few times in the film, didn't love some of the brutality just at a sort of visceral aesthetic level, um, but thought it was a really interesting movie. And what I did not think is that it was a movie that would make me think about, you know, the relationship between war and myth, and if it's possible to die a revolutionary death. And, you know, it it made me think some stuff. So I I really enjoyed it. Excited to talk about it. Um, The positive vibes for me as I take a trip into Spooky Town. Amazing. What about you, Raymond?
2: Um, I was actually a little bit late to the party on this one. I I remember when it came out and was, uh, like you said, kind of an instant classic. It was something of a sensation straight out the gate. Um, And even folks who didn't really know how to grab it, I think, still understood that it was like, oh, this is this is pretty unique and refreshing and exciting. Um, And certainly, despite having made some wonderful films up to this point, uh, my favorite of his is Devil's Backbone, which is kind of like a a sister film to this. Um, This really feels like his arrival as an auteur. You know, this is the one that really put him on the map, at least globally in a major way. Um the first time I saw it I was actually living in New York and my roommate was uh from Mexico and I was watching the movie and she had talked it up she loved it and for whatever reason my DVD just kind of sputtered out at one point and the subtitles just stopped working um for like the last I don't know 10 or 15 minutes of the movie and i paused it and had to wait for my roommate to get back home and when she did i said hey when you're all settled i just i need you to do me a huge favor And just, like, narrate this movie for me in just the last 10 or 15 minutes. Just live translate for you. 100%. Wow. And so, yeah, we sat down together and we watched the last 10 or 15 minutes of it. And she's she's keeping up with it. And she's getting really enthusiastic because, like I said, she's a fan of the movie. And she goes, oh, okay, he's saying this and this is kind of how to interpret it. And this is what it means and the specificity of the language is such that blah, blah, blah. And then we get to the end of it, and she's so amped up, and she goes, "Well, now I really want to watch this." And so we just restarted it and played it again. And it was it was one of those movies that even like sitting there in a dorm room watching it on a laptop with you know the subtitles fritzing out on me, like I said before, I could still tell it was something really, really special. And um, ever since, I mean, Guillermo del Toro is uh, one of my one of my icons, one of my heroes. I, I think uh, he's. He's one of the folks that I, I, I most revere in the uh, the cinematic arts. And I, I, I think uh, what I respond to most with his movies is this this constant sense of, of curiosity and discovery. And uh, he, he paints with uh, such a, a broad and expansive palette. Uh, his movies may not always be great or they may be a little bit weird or a little unwieldy. But they're always unique. There's always something special about them. So... Um, yeah, I'm uh, really excited to talk about this one tonight.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of in the camp that I really didn't understand it when I first saw it. Like, I didn't quite get it. Like, you know, at like uh, at one level, I got it, but I didn't really understand the the depth, the use of you know a particular genre known as magical realism that emerged in like the middle of the 20th century in in Latin America, with like Borges and um, uh, Gabriel. What is it, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and um, some others. Um, and I, I didn't really understand the genre too much. So I saw it, and I thought it was going to be like a fairy tale, and I was like, oh, this is scary. That's like a scary monster. Like, I thought it was going to be kind of fluffy, like Dis- Disney-like, because I was told that it was a fairy tale. And so I didn't really kind of get the aesthetic, because I'd never seen anything of his prior to to this film. So I didn't really understand what he was doing. So it kind of took me, I think, repeated viewings to really kind of fully grasp the the magic and the depth and... um the sort of wonder and beauty that the film presents, but also what it stimulates and evokes in my own sort of musings and imaginations as I participate in the imagery and uh, whatnot as it's played out in front of me. And so the first time I saw it, I was definitely kind of like, oh, this is cool, but I just kind of don't know if I fully get it. And then on repeated viewings, I actually think, it's one of the best films that's ever been made. It's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Oh wow! Yeah, um, I think uh, it. I think the themes that it addresses are perfectly in my wheelhouse about the real versus the imaginary, and um, how we're always constructing imaginary frameworks, and that the adult world, the adult world of war, imperialism, exploitation, uh, gender inequality, hierarchy that that's also a form of imaginative construction and that the quote imaginary world that is played out at least in this film in the eyes of youthful innocence and childlike wonder um, is no less real and that it might um, uh, even be more powerful um, because uh, it recognizes certain elements of creativity and beauty that the adult imaginary doesn't, at least how it's played out here. So, for me, I think that there's just so much to explore at uh, a political level. Obviously, the film is uh, intentionally anti-fascist, as it is exploring Franco's Spain in 1944, you know, a handful of years after the end of the Civil War in Spain. Um, And you obviously have uh, rebels in the hills that are kind of Republican, communist, um, rebels that are anti-fascist intentionally so, and they're being suppressed by this Uh, dominant dictatorial representative in the form of Ophelia's uh, stepfather the captain. So I think that there's a lot politically there, philosophically. I think it's interesting, and then I think we could even say at like a psychological level, there's something really interesting about this young girl who's dealing with the loss of her father. Um, so there's uh, an exploration of trauma and how you deal with grief and sadness and things like that. So I think it's really fantastic uh, at pretty much every level, and I do think it's probably. I mean, it'd be one of my favorite films ever in my top whatever 50. 20, 30, somewhere in that range, you know? Don't know if it'd be like a top 10 for me, but definitely I think if push came to shove um, in in the top 20, top 30 range for sure. So, I'm excited to talk about it! All right, I do want to let people know we are live right now, so if you're in the chat, please make sure you contribute questions, thoughts, things like that. Uh, We are keeping an eye on what's going on in the YouTube chat, so uh, give us your contributions, what you think about this film, and even Del Toro's filmography, other things that he's done. Um, we have a Twitter account. make sure you follow that. Show me the meaning. Uh, it's SMTM underscore POD. So give us a follow there. We're you know, tweeting out extras and thoughts and threads and Raymond's always got cool shit that he's sharing um, in relation to films that we discuss here that is being retweeted by that account there. So go give us a follow SMTM underscore pod. Uh, before we start peeling this thing apart, I gotta give um, a-, a little rundown here of what this film is about. For people that aren't familiar with the film, or if you are familiar with the film, uh, here's just a quick little recap. Alright, so basically, the film opens on a dying young girl who we come to learn is Ophelia. A voiceover tells us of a magical kingdom where a princess once reigned, and after she died, it was promised that her soul would return once again, so her father built these labyrinths everywhere so that she could find her way back to her underground, underground kingdom. We then get thrown into the middle of Franco's fascist reign in Spain in 1944. A young Ophelia is headed to her new home with her pregnant and sick mother so they can move in with Ophelia's new stepfather, the captain of a fascist outpost who's working to eradicate resistance armies. One night, Ophelia is led by a fairy to a labyrinth where they descend into the earth and meet the fawn. The fawn explains that she is the reincarnated Princess Moana and that she must fulfill three tasks in order to acquire her kingdom. Now, she can completes the first task with ease by retrieving a key from the belly of a toad and after this the fawn gives a mandrake root to Ophelia to place under her sick mother's bed to heal her. Immediately and basically miraculously her mother begins to feel better. Now for the second task, Ophelia is charged with getting the dagger in an underground lair but she's warned not to consume any of the tasty food that is down there. But of course she succumbs and she eats a grape. Waking the pale man who ends up eating two of the fairies and after this of course the fawn is super pissed and he curses Ophelia And he tells her that she can never return to the underground world now Meanwhile while all this is going on in the captain's house. There's some spies that have infiltrated the captain uh, in- Infiltrated the captain's ranks and his suspicions start to rise, leading him to snuff out the traitors in his household. He kills a doctor and then captures Mercedes, who is a housekeeper, but before he can torture her for information, she stabs him multiple times, cuts his face up Joker-style, and runs out of the house. Uh, The Fawn changes his mind, and he decides that he's going to give Ophelia one more chance. And he says that she must bring her newborn brother to the labyrinth. So Ophelia drugs the captain, grabs the baby, and then when she reaches the labyrinth, the fawn explains that they must spill the baby's blood. But Ophelia refuses, and she chooses to protect the baby instead. Now, just at this point, the captain appears, grabs the baby, and shoots Ophelia. Then moments later, the captain is stopped by rebels, who shoot and kill him without letting him give a message that he wants to to his son, saying that, no, your son will never know anything about you. The film then closes with Ophelia's blood dripping into the labyrinth, where she is then transported to a celestial type of kingdom, where it's explained that she passed the final test and sacrificed herself rather than her brother, so she's invited to sit on the throne next to her father and mother. And an epilogue tells us that she ruled wisely for many centuries and left quiet traces of herself in the human realm, are visible only to those who know where to look. End of movie. All right, before we continue, we gotta give a quick shout-out to our sponsor at Storyblocks. Storyblocks is the complete stock solution providing an unlimited library of over a million-plus royalty-free, high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. Look, don't get stuck in your project because you can't find the right footage or sound effect or background music. I've been there many times, you get frustrated, then you gotta try to figure out some sort of way to rip something and then it might not be legal and then you're risking yourself and then even then it's not good quality or you have to pay for it or something like that. Don't deal with any of that madness, head over to Storyblocks, which is a badass content library, and you can get all your friggin' royalty-free goodies, so storyblocks.com slash wisecrack, or you can click the link down in the description so that you can learn more about Storyblocks. Again, that's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack, or click the link down below so you can learn all about the risk-free quality goodies that you can get from Storyblocks. They're badass. I use them. Wisecrack use them. You just go there's no reason not to storyblocks.com wisecrack click the link down in the show notes now back to the show alright so um, this film has been sort of notably placed in this genre that is called magical realism now some people like the term some people think the term is actually a useless term because it can be too broad because once you start thinking about the imagination then isn't everything magical realism isn't all cinema all storytelling isn't everything even documentary? Isn't that magical realism? But the point with magical realism is that it's intentionally trying to bring the fantastical or the supernatural or the mythical into the quote-unquote real world, rather than a film like Lord of the Rings, which is takes place in a sort of fantasy world. Fantasy is sort of infused into the quote-unquote real world. So that's what this film is kind of... That, or that's where this film is oftentimes placed. So I think one of the interesting things we can talk about here is what is magical about this film and what do we think the film does by blurring those lines between the quote-unquote magical, fantastical and the quote-unquote real. And then what can we do with that? Like, why is that amazing? And then, of course, more importantly, how does Del Toro do it? Right and and like as a filmmaker, let's talk about that execution a little bit. Raymond, you got some initial thoughts on this? Oh sure, why not?
2: Um, I think uh, boy, this is a, a a lot to snap off right at the beginning. Um, but you kind of alluded to something I, I think pretty instructive in your opening thoughts on this, Austin. That Del Toro has stated pretty explicitly, like uh, on the commentary for this movie, he says he doesn't he doesn't believe in government, he doesn't believe in borders, and this is a movie, like you said that sort of interrogates that tension between the accepted fantasy of you know uh once again what he says in the commentary is like politics religion uh money you know class etc um all of these things are you know validated as adult concerns uh but fantasy is stigmatized or it's relegated to childhood or or looked down upon or um, you know however you wanna describe it. Um, and, and there is this, this beautiful, not just lack of judgment, but real embracing of the fantastic uh, across all of his movies. Um, he, he did this wonderful interview with, um, I think her name is uh, Carolyn Frumke. She's a, a fantasy author. I believe she did Inkart. I'm not familiar with her work, but um, they, they referenced a few of her books in the, uh, the interview that the two of them were doing together. And he said, you know, a hundred years from now, people will look back and say, wow, they they were crazy. All all this stuff that they were doing and what, you know, why would that make any sense to them? But uh, fantasy will still be timeless, you know. Uh, It'll be just as timeless as it is now, despite being a hundred years old. It'll it'll still be timeless a hundred years hence. And there is a, a sort of strain of that in this film that you... You, I know there are a lot of folks who who watch this and uh, fret over the ambiguity of it all. you know is it is it all in her head? is it, it, are these two parallel realities that Ophelia is just able to kind of move between? And I, I think that kind of misses the point that to Ophelia it is it, it is real. It may just be subjective, but it, it is real and all, all of all of the events of the film, both in reality and in fantasy, both form, and uh, sort of instruct her in a certain way and, and help her develop and grow as a person. So what can really be more real than that, you know? And I, I think that that's kind of the secret to it is just he, he engages this world at her level and despite what everyone is telling her, he makes a point of always having her make her decisions, make those decisions for herself, even if it means disobeying the authority figures. She's always she, she's always sticking by her gut and engaging the world on her terms. And I, I think that is, to answer your question, I, I think that's really, um, uh, really a, a key part of why the, the, the fantasy aspects of this work so well, especially when the lines start to blur
0: yeah I think, like one way I definitely read it a little bit was like this idea that there's no room for magic and fascism, and that, like, because the you know, non- labyrinth world is is so coldly fascistic, it's almost like they pushed out the realm of dreams and fantasy and magic and it had to find home underground. So there's this like uneven surplus of uh, imagination. And magic on one side, because the political reality of that world has no room for that, no space for imagination or wonder or magic or anything like that. And you know, it made me think a little bit too about like how the way children are are treated um, in the film. Obviously, we have Ophelia, but even like the way in which her unborn brother is kind of treated off the rip um, is more as a a prop for the captain than anything else. Which then you know kind of did make me think of how whether it's it's Socrates or Christ this emphasis that like children are the ones who are always ready to hear the more radical message children are the ones who have that sense of wonder and well then no pun intended but no wonder that Ophelia has to like go to this magical world to find that because the the upstairs non-labyrinthian world is just so devoid of all of those things um I don't know. That was that was my, my, my initial thought and kind of building off what you were saying, Raymond, which I also agreed with.
1: Yeah, there's something I mean, it seems pretty clear too that it's underground, so it's hidden, is it repressed, you know? Is it like like uh uh my my acting coach uh shouts to Anthony Mindel. He always says what uh, what you resist persists, right? Which is also something they talk about in like transcendental meditation and stuff like that. Or you could say it in fancier terms, you could be like, you know, there's a return of the repressed. And so it's it's this idea that, yeah, you can hide all the magic that you want. You can suppress it, you can deny it, but eventually it's going to come back. Like you can't ultimately get, get rid of whatever it is that's being hidden. Is it the world of possibility? Is it the world of potential? Is it the world that exists outside of what you deem to be real? And one thing we can say that this sort of fascist regime, it tries to monopolize that which is real. This is good, this is bad, this is right, this is the way to do it. Those other things are not the way to do it. Those other things are the wrong way. Those other things are outside of the bounds of what we deem to be right. And if you have control over the terms of what is real, then you can control a lot of things. But I think what del Toro does is he kinda says, ah, but even those people who are controlling what is real, they're actually engaged in a type of fabrication. They're still constructing. They're still imagining a world. They just do it in a suppressive way, right? And so then what you get is this blurring of the lines between one form of imagining, which is supposedly real, which is used to wield power in 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 an oppressive and exploitative sense, and this other form of imagination that is one that is bountiful, that is, um, I mean, there's this idea that the mandrake root, you know, the reason that it's a mandrake root is they are related to fertility. So again, there's bounty. Um, you know, the, the, the Spanish title isn't Pan's Labyrinth, but it's uh, the labyrinth of the fawn right and who's the character of the fawn and he talks about uh the fawn even talks about how i'm like of the earth and i'm ancient and so there's something also that's maybe ecological here there's something about the the natural world and i love 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 the allusions to alice in wonderland but the color of Ophelia's dress is green right and she's going into this cave to um defeat this toad who's who's rotting a tree, right? So there's all these like environmental and maybe um uh what's the word I'm looking for, sort of like cohesive ways of relating with the world rather than through suppression, oppression, exploitation, hierarchy, patriarchy, dominance, you know, stratification that you get in the militaristic world.
2: And you you mentioned the Mandrake root specifically, but this this film is replete with Yannick imagery throughout. There's there's a very explicit line drawn between uh, you know, maternalism and nature, and, and and the sort of like nurturing aspects of nature. You know, when when she's crawling through the the tunnel in which she meets um, the the toad, it's uh, uh, Del Toro describes that as like. The uterine wall and he, he he talks about the um the the pale man's uh, banquet uh, in much the same terms and uh, the speaking of the divide between reality and fantasy within this they do a wonderful job aesthetically of coding the two worlds as well that you know reality is all in these really cold grays and blues and and greens as you mentioned um and then as they start to introduce the fantastic, you see these much warmer colors start to intrude on the real world, and and the first glimpse of that that you get, fittingly enough for the the sort of maternal motif throughout, is when she is laying her ear against her mother's uh, womb and and you know singing to her brother, and and you see this this beautiful amber glow and all of these sort of like root like appendages that are kind of growing off of him and it's all all that stuff is is made pretty pretty visually explicit and it's it's one of those things that once again helps introduce those fantastic themes and ease ease them into the real world because uh without even really noticing it he starts to use warmer hues on the characters above ground. And, and that just kind of like subconsciously primes you for when those worlds finally collide near the end. It's, it, it really is a, a, a beautiful piece of artistry. And um, uh, hats off to Guillermo, Guillermo Navarro, the, uh, the director of photography as well. Sorry, Michael, go ahead.
0: No, no, I was going to say, like, how cool is it that the, the way that eventually Ophelia commutes between the worlds is a piece of chalk. Yeah. This idea that, that, that something so simple is all that it takes to create that transformation, um, to get to that world or let some of it in. I I really dug that.
2: And something so elementary, like we, uh, I don't necessarily know that this was intentional, but uh, you know, the clear association with chalk for me is not just school, but very early childhood education, you know, before whiteboards and overheads and all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. What do we think there's something, um, so Misty in the chat said that, uh, they always say that fans of Miyazaki, should watch pan's labyrinth when you were talking earlier i was thinking of miyazaki too because a lot of miyazaki's themes are exploring children versus adults right uh, ecology peace um nature versus sort of um the industrialization and technologization of of the land and of our our own human quote-unquote natures right so there's something that's being exploited here what do we think about and philosophers love to talk about this too one of my favorite philosophers French uh, French philosopher named Alain Badiou you know, talks a lot about youth as being like... Uh,
0: I was going to bring him up later. I had this note. <laughs> it was going to be all smart. And now you did. So when I do it, people will be like, wow, Michael comes on and just like fucking copies whatever Austin says. It's pathetic. Sorry, keep going.
1: I mean, to be fair, we did study at the same place and uh, with some same influences. So, you know, it's... I'm totally whatever. out of my depths with it. the two of you. All I do is watch movies. <laughs> no, hey, fuck. I love it. I love it. But but it's this idea of rule romanticizing maybe to the point of fetishizing but romanticizing youth as an agent of revolutionary change and there's something about that and um what do we think here what is this film exploring about the innocence of childhood is there something just inherently good about childhood and then is there something inherently bad about getting old and getting stodgy and getting cranky, like is it, that? Because that seems to be something that's explored. Whether or not it is a, is drawing the lines as hard as I'm drawing them now. What do we think about this tension?
0: Well, well, I'm curious what you guys think about the captain's watch, right? Because that's his his mm. connection to childhood and his father and his death. Um, I imagine it's trying to say something about these things. But how, how do you guys read that?
1: I, I thought of it as control over time, like the most fundamental mm. thing. Like, like, so the reason he keeps trying to turn
0: it back on, even though it's dead, his dad's time has stopped, but he keeps fidgeting, keeps trying to have control over it.
1: And I think that that the clock is uh, is is one of the fundamental things that has shifted us into the quote unquote modern the modern world. It's about a control over time, about a control over space, right? And if you can control time, uh, you can control how your troops are being deployed. You can control how supplies are being delivered. You can control the production of goods and services, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can create and construct a way of measuring reality and you do that through the quantification of nature in the form of time um, if you can do that, then you have great immense power. And so I think that for for me, is that's like his fundamental form of control, which is why it's also the last thing that he looks at. And then he says, you know, tell my son da-da-da-da-da and Mercedes and I love that it's a woman that stands up too because there's also clearly like this kind of like patriarchal gender uh, gender uh, domination that, that is being explored too. And she says, nah, fuck you, bro. She's not going to know, the, or he's not going to know anything about you.
0: <laughs> that line
1: rules so hard.
2: <laughs> you, you bring up the watch and I think that is Um, uh, a lovely bit of business that he's consumed with throughout but if most of the stuff where we see him at least when the character is being introduced he's he's deeply concerned with the not only the minutiae of something like the watch but also he's he's peering through that little sort of jeweler's loop at a map and and if you look at the set surrounding him when he's fixing the watch the first time you see him fiddling with it he's surrounded by all these giant cogs though he himself as though he himself is like part of this machine and that he is so he's so consumed by by the gears of all of it that he you know he misses the forest for the trees in a way and I, I do think it's very telling that when he's confronted about it at dinner that he he says no my father never had a watch and it's it's one of those things that's like okay what does what does that say about the character is he you know he's so he's so consumed or obsessed by this object and and the fact that he has to deny its very existence is it because he he can't control it because he can't coax his whim out of it in much the same way he's able to control everyone else around him um you know it's it it is just it's a really smart bit of writing i like this movie guys (laughs)
1: I'm starting to realize that I think Raven likes it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean there's definitely some something about psychic repression here, right? Like he he can't be vulnerable. He can't um, explore his own daddy issues, right? Even though it's interesting the film kind of takes place in uh, the context of a young girl who lost her father in the war. And I wonder, was her father a rebel? Like, we don't really get much information. What side of the war was he on? But we just know that he... Oh,
0: he was on the bad side because he, he... Yeah, he tailored the uniforms oh, did for he? the bad guys. Okay, I missed that part. Yeah. Okay, okay. That, that's how um, the, the, the mother met the captain. Um, okay, there, yeah.
2: There's also... You bring up Mercedes' line to the captain about, you know, he won't even know your name. And that is Del, Del Toro. Uh, I was reading... Um, uh, I think it was the companion book to At Home with Monsters, his museum exhibit. Um, And he was talking in that book, there's a wonderful interview with him where he, he talks about how death is really not necessarily the end of life so much as, you know, a natural part of life. It's, it's what gives life meaning and immortality is not about living forever. It's, it's about living meaningfully and, and, and living through the words and deeds of the ones you leave behind, the ones that you love. And for her to twist the knife, like knowing that that's how del Toro feels about about life and death for Mercedes to say at the end like your own son the like the the seed that bears your name won't even know who it's from if if he continues to carry your name at that it's it's just one of those things that like knowing del toro's thought process on all of this it it becomes so much more of a fuck you because it's like oh that is that it, not only is the captain dying, he is ceasing to exist by having no legacy. And for someone as vain as he is, that is that is a fate worse than death, it, you know?
0: Yeah, well, so Del Toro quotes Kierkegaard, a soaring Kierkegaard Danish philosopher when describing this. Um, I, I found this quote earlier, and of course I got all giddy when I heard he, he talked about Kierkegaard in relation to the movie. Uh, but Del Toro said, I always think of that beautiful quote by Kierkegaard that says, the tyrant's reign ends with his death but the martyr's reign starts with his death. I think that is the essence of the movie. It's about living forever by choosing how you die. And, and I do think like that's why the, the final scene and the pile of death is so important. Cause I think we see that contrast. What, what does the tyrant's death look like? We see it in the captain. What does the martyr's
2: death look like? And maybe we see a version of that in Ophelia. You, you certainly see um, the martyr in the doctor who... Um... Oh yeah, gets definitely. the rebel out of his misery and on, on the uh, fittingly enough on the commentary Del Toro says that the last, you know, 15 or 20 paces that that doctor takes before being shot, he told the actor this is the this is the pinnacle. This is the highest moment of your life and this is the greatest thing you've ever done and you're going to die knowing that.
0: Yeah. I mean, and this connects back to something Austin said earlier. Oh go ahead Austin. No, 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 go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, was, and this just reminds me of, of the French guy you brought up earlier who uh, likes that idea of like uh, uh, of becoming immortal. Which just means like living for an idea or a cause that transcends your mortality so that in a sense you can be a martyr, you can live forever, you participate in something that's so great uh, that even after you're gone, there's still the effects of
1: that that are happening. You're still uh, connecting to that idea. So these effects – the. Let's say they're there, but they're not at the surface, right? And the whole epilogue where it says they're visible only to those who know where to look. Mm-hmm. So is that the idea that Ophelia, that her martyrdom, the the imprint that she left on the world is there? And it's kind of, because it's a fairy tale, so we could kind of imagine you telling this to a child and then inspiring your child to look for the marks of Ophelia, right? So it's almost like I just got chills. I don't know if you guys find this. But I literally just got chills. thinking about this. Gave but it's like and you see this already. I did. I gave myself good. Um but it's like this beautiful flower is blooming on the tree where she left her dress when she I went in. Love and so the, the idea is is that there are these fingerprints there, but you have to know how to look. And you have to know where to look. But what that does is it sort of challenges you, inspires you, and maybe even empowers you to continue to live in the wake of the event that was Ophelia, right? And there's something lovely about that. I'm just getting head nods. I feel like I'm in church right no, now. No, yeah, I think amen, i think amen, also just bro. like name. Do you want me to tell? No, you? for sure. I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> no,
0: I I too agree, Austin. Good well, job. I think it's my, it's my one friend. of those
2: tough things that all three of us are going around and we're just like, you know what I love about this movie? You know what I love about? <laughs> yeah. it? And I'm not going to say no, Austin. You don't love that about that movie?
1: <laughs> right, right, right.
2: Um, I mean, if we need someone to be
0: negative, I can be a little bit negative. Yeah, if do that it. Fuels the conversation on. I, I guess for me, I don't know. I think there's, there's something about, okay, I'll devil's advocate myself. I understand a certain necessity of the brutality in the film mm. for getting at the gnarliness and the absolute um, lack of concern for, for life by the fascist. Obviously, I, I think for me, the, the scene that hit me the hardest is someone that doesn't like super gnarly, violent stuff is the father and son. The wine bottle. hunting for rabbits. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was like really brutal. There is a part of me that a little bit is like, and this is one of the reasons I avoid spooky stuff sometimes, because I feel like it's used for effect, but without much residual meaning. Now, in this film, I felt a good amount of impact from those scenes, but I wonder, like, I don't know, I just, I wonder for y'all who know more about Del Toro, and maybe there's one person listening to this podcast that's also as naive as I am about those films, and one other person who hates spooky stuff, I love you and I'm here for you. I don't know. You say a little bit more, like, why, why do we need
2: it? I think, um, you know, it, when you read about the Spanish Civil War, there, there's something insane, like, half of the casualties were summarily executed or, or just, like, murdered in cold blood. They weren't, like, combatants or, uh, you know, or if they were combatants, they were executed long after they had left the field of battle. Um, and I, I think it is... It, it was likely pretty important for him to demonstrate that brutality up front to recognize that like not only is this person evil he he's inhuman he can't be reasoned with there's no uh you know there's there's nothing that you can appeal to um you know he has he has Sacrificed his humanity, and I also think yeah he, he calls himself some type of monster in the film like he
0: refers sure. to himself as a monster
2: and and uh, of course over the course of the film he he slowly transforms into one he is you know little by little he's deformed by uh by the the injuries and the the wounds that he's uh, that are inflicted upon him but I also think that uh, giving the movie not only that that sense of uh, heightened stakes with his presence um but also demonstrating that uh, that this movie as a a piece of art has the capacity for that degree of extreme violence i think it this is uh i'm not saying this in a reductive way but in just sort of a literalized way it's a way of pulling older audiences down to its level to say that like you you're not above fantasy like i want i want you to see the world through a child's eyes as fantastic and as frightening as that may seem, um, in equal parts, take the good with the bad. Um, those are I would my say thoughts the only on hard
0: that. part I have with some of that then is yeah. Uh, and I want to hear Austin's And I just wonder if this to it relates. One thing I had a little bit of a, a slight problem with was the mom, because I'm like, wow, you seem great. Ophelia loves you a lot. Why did you get impregnated and marry this horrible guy? And then of course I thought maybe that's like a protective mechanism, I don't know what what the world was like for her when her husband died, but there was a part of me in the movie that got mad at Ophelia's mom for putting her in that situation to begin with, which took me out of it momentarily.
1: Yeah, interesting. So there's so much here that I thought was fascinating. You were talking about how the captain is referred to as a monster. Uh, He sort of transforms into a monster. And then the brute Jokerified. He gets Jokerified, uh, and then the sort of brutality of. Let's just take that one scene where he uses the wine bottle to smash the young the young man's face. Um, I I like the fact that the quote unquote real world has humans who are more monstrous than the monsters of the underworld. Although the Pale Man is pretty fucking scary. But um, the fawn, just from his not appearance, is terrifying. And you're like, oh my god. But yet Ophelia is not afraid of the fawn. And these fairies are pretty creepy looking. They're not like Tinkerbell, right? They, It's like they're kind of a little scary. They kind of look like orc-like. They're kind of demon looking and they're kind of creepy, right? Yeah. So this underground this world This wasn't
2: is-
0: like Julia Roberts in Hook. <laughs> no, it
1: was not. <laughs> Although I so, heard she was much kinda- more
2: difficult to work with than the fairies in this. Uh, true,
1: true, true. So... so- you know so the what you get then in the real world is the world of monsters like real monsters bad monsters the monsters of imperialism the monsters of fascism the monsters of uh, oppression things like that and i think one of the things that's interesting is well where do these stories come from these stories come from the the fears of what is potentially in humanity that are then monsterized in the form of vampires and werewolves and ghosts and goblins and ghouls and things like that because it's actually us, and this goes back to what we talked about with Apocalypse Now, like horror has a human face it's really like the worst of what is possible within humanity that we deem to be the monstrous, right? but it doesn't mean that you have to um, look like a monster to be monstrous, you can look like a monster and actually be the hero, right? like Hellboy is a great example of this, right? It looks like a monster, but it's kind of a hero. Well, with this, you can look like a nice-looking, put-together, strapping, you're serving your country, and you're a fucking monster. And I think that's important because then the quote-unquote real world is still then the world of – Monsters and fantasy and 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 grotesque violence. So when he smashes that young guy's face with the wine bottle, it almost it needs that level of brutality in the service of the story to make the real world fantastical. Because no one's face actually caves like that with a wine bottle, right? You can't you can't crush a person. How do you
0: know that? I, I don't <laughs> like that you know that. It's so Del Toro actually so said think,
2: that that was based on well del-, del toro said that was actually based on something he witnessed firsthand that he he got into not necessarily a bar fight but he was he and a friend were jumped and uh some guys were hitting guillermo del toro with a chain and the and their friends were hitting del toro's friend with a wine bottle or a beer bottle, I think it was. And the beer bottle just didn't break. And they kept just jamming it and jamming and just hitting him and hitting him. And he was like, I'm getting my ass beaten with this chain. And all I could think about is like, oh, you know, it always breaks in like Westerns and stuff. <laughs> like, it's just, yeah, the it's sugar just, glass. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it is It is one of those things that like that made a really distinct impression on him. But you, you talk about... Um, the the relative sense of monstrosity the the poles that exist within this film where uh very scary movie monsters are sort of portrayed neutrally um you know maybe maybe the pale man is a little bit more uh, malevolent but he still has some rules you know whereas uh once again to reiterate like you were saying the the folks above ground not not so much they can't be reasoned with and he he did this interview a while back where he was talking about how The reason he has such a a passion and affinity for monsters, this is something you you can't talk about Del Toro without talking about monsters, is that when he looks in a magazine or he looks on a billboard or he watches TV, he doesn't see himself. And he said something about how, I'm paraphrasing, but something about how models and magazines are so far on this side of the spectrum, that if you put frankenstein's monster on the other side, he's like, "No, I, I look way, way closer to this side of the spectrum, and that just he's like you know it it is it, it is part of his sort of identity, his empathy with these creatures that you know that they are us that the real the real monstrosity in his mind is the sort of canonized sense of beauty that everyone is expected to maintain even even though it may be unattainable.
0: Yeah, he gave a really good speech to that effect. I think it was after one of the awards that Shape of Water got uh, whatever year that was that the Oscars happened. Um,
1: but yeah, I, I found it very compelling at the time, even though I hadn't watched my movie movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. So, And then kind of picking up on your point, Michael, about being a little bit frustrated about why the mother would put Ophelia into this situation in the first place. I mean, the chat's going off right now with some good contributions. Um, Donna said, you know, it's a time frame where women didn't have many choices, especially when such an opportunity is presented to her. Shelter and the possibility of her daughter living a better life. There's something interesting. One of the soldiers at one point when he's, touting like the benefits of Franco's regime, it's fire and bread. Every household that is united under this regime is going to have fire and bread. So it's like the basic elemental components of life. It's like if you just embrace this nationalistic, uh, united regime, then you will have warmth, fire which is also like the foundation of technology right so there's maybe a nod to prometheus here and this idea of of humanity being bestowed with the gifts of of being able to have control over nature right which is also why you have the captain with the clock and standing in that workshop you know constantly fiddling with things and like the the gear um prometheus of course imagery. his eyes were uh were yeah. pecked out you know so, so, there's something interesting, maybe there, and then bread, which is food for survival, right? So there's something about creating this world that will have mastery and that will protect you and in this world, in order to be fed and to kind of participate in the kind of like modernization of society, uh, maybe she didn't really have many choices, so she had to kind of kind of yeah, fit within that and so that seems like the obv- that seems like maybe the obvious way of thinking about it, but then at the same time, you still think like what the fuck like I know it is kind of shitty. It is kind of, you feel like it's kind of shitty and it's, so it's like, there's an empathy that's like, okay, so we understand, but at the same time, does that justify it? I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of those sticky situations. There's also kind of a
2: subtle implication that, uh, the captain may have been responsible for her husband's death or that he was, he, he yeah. was like, uh, he was kind of, he kind of had his eye on her before, uh, he was, uh, disappeared. Her husband was disappeared. um, so so do you think then he I was responsible for I the death and then he
1: like forces her to I come? I think there's
2: kind of an implication yeah. that... Because that's the n- most monstrous
0: shit one yeah. can do.
1: Yeah.
2: So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's sort of an implication that she not only was it, like she didn't meet this guy in a park and and just find out about the fascist stuff later it, oh <laughs> he wasn't playing yeah, maybe, the violin in a park wow. and um yeah i think uh, you you bring up something but he was so nice to her at that dinner <laughs> you bring up something interesting about uh the i hadn't really thought of the prometheus connection with the pale man until you mentioned that austin but also the the bread that they're that when they're talking about that that has the sort of uh, the the screed on the back, the the polemic written on it, um, you know that was a real thing. Like the uh, loaves of bread were were dropped all over Spain with with uh, fascist propaganda written on the back of them. Um, you know it's it and. That's something that like you said, within that one scene you can see how persuasive that could be.
1: Can we can we just nerd out for a little bit now about the practical effects? We haven't been we haven't been effects. nerding out already. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. About about the filmmaking craft. You know? We've yeah. been talking a lot about the themes and and the storytelling devices, but let's just talk about the fucking monsters.
2: Yeah, all pretty much. the cinematography and the, cinematography to, uh, and the colors, to, yeah. To David Marti and um uh her her name is uh, Mansi Ribe. Uh, they're the, the two effects artists, the makeup artists who uh, were awarded Oscars for their efforts in this. Um, uh, and th- just a match made in heaven. They've done, I think, most of Del Toro's work. Uh, and now, of course, after the Oscar win, they've, they've worked on tons of stuff. Um, and uh, Doug Jones as well, uh, an often overlooked actor um, who you know spends as much time underneath makeup as he does uh with his his normal face you know that this really is like it's so cool to watch all the behind the scenes features on this movie and see the the sort of like justice league of of uh practical effects coming together to make something really really special um you know even even uh this was I think in some of his movies the the cgi cat is kind of out of the bag a little bit um and and maybe uh, Crimson Peak, which is one of my favorite of his, there it, it gets a little bit awash, even though they used practical effects and then did CGI uh, augmentation over it. Uh, sometimes it feels a little bit a little bit too heavy, but this one is just a, a a wonderful blend where they're using the the CGI to extract Doug Jones's real legs and and just leave the puppet legs behind. And uh, I mean, there's there, there's so many uh, incredible design anecdotes uh, that that they reveal in, in the behind the scenes stuff. I, I could talk about this all day, man. Well, let's keep talking about oh, it then, I brother. Like, I didn't, I didn't Don't want to hog the mic. I thought you guys might have some
0: thoughts.
1: Go, no, Go! This is no, good I mean, shit! It
0: looks very good. <laughs> um, I, I, I enjoyed watching it because of how it looked good. And I appreciate the work done by those folks.
1: I, I think the thing that I, I want to draw attention to are a couple of ways of that, that this film really comes to life for me. Like One, the color palette. I think really serves the fairy tale vibe. Like it just looks as soon as the film starts, it looks magical. Um, the greens it, it's almost a little oversaturated and so um it, it, it kind of just creates this mood and this tone as soon as as soon as the film starts right and then there are these really clever editing devices like these use of uh like the use of of cuts um by like panning across a tree that then sort of cuts between all those scenes vertical that, wipes that kind of give the suggestion of those, flipping a page yeah. in a, a storybook yeah which is amazing and then it's the integration of practical and special effects uh, of cg effects with with practical that i think is is wonderful so often we we see films that over rely on on cg um and they don't do the the monster makeup and the silicone like uh like like a carpenter film or something like that but i am a huge fan and advocate and supporter of the use of practical effects i just think there's something um truly wonderful about seeing a a human in a rubber suit um and then uh and then on top of that then what you have then are the ways that all of these things are brought together with like a really lovely simple soundtrack I think that almost kind of plays in the background. I mean, there's that really around that lullaby, Yeah, that lullaby, that, that hummings. It's fucking fantastic. It just kind of sets this tone. And I really feel like it's an adult fairy tale. In so many ways, but it's it's in the format of a child's fairy tale, but it's scary as fuck, so clearly it's not for children. And
2: before we move on, just just to double back and, and do a little more Doug Jones praise, I, I don't think folks realize Doug, Doug Jones, not only a, a wonderful actor, a wonderful mime, also one of the nicest people in Hollywood history. He's like the sweetest person ever. And in this movie, not only is he bringing his phenomenal physical performances to life he he is not a spanish speaker he learned all all of these lines phonetically they were dubbed over afterwards uh but del toro had told him you know you can just you can just move your mouth or you can count or something and then we'll we'll dub over and match it to your mouth movements and cut away when it doesn't match and he was like what the hell kind of world is mm. that for this little girl that I'm going to be acting with? So, so for That's months, so great. yeah, for months in advance of of going to shoot this, he he drilled all of his lines, getting them down, and he said it was still it was still pretty rusty on the day, and he had to go through pretty slowly. But to not only be giving this uh, unbelievable extraterrestrial physical performance. But also to be doing it in a language that you don't speak, to have to learn that phonetically, and also be doing all of that while only being able to see the world through two little tear ducts on, on the fawn's face, or uh, two little nostrils on the pale man's face. I mean, it is... It is a, a top tier performance. I don't think uh, these kind of actors. Uh, the you know Toby Kebble has appeared on screen a lot more uh, frequently. But the Andy Circuses of the world. Toby Kebble did wonderful work in uh, uh, the Planet of the Apes updates. And folks just don't... They don't give them the credit they're due because this is this is an extremely challenging kind of performance and there aren't a lot of folks out there who could pull it off.
1: Yeah, one of the things I think that's interesting, and this is kind of the last oh, and, thing I'll uh, say... One more,
2: sorry, Javier Botet. Yeah, yeah, oh, shout yeah. Shout out. Javier Botet, who's like the Spanish Doug Jones. He's amazing. He did like the Crooked Man in
1: the Conjuring movies. But sorry, go ahead. No, no, I think the last thing I'll say about this film from my perspective is that this film... It tells story and it uses certain technological devices in telling story in a way that is so unique because it kind of is just literally creating a world and creating a a narrative and creating a way of um, communicating morals without it feels like without one condescending to like what people want to hear you know or without kind of condescending to the way that we use storytelling devices like there's something i don't know if if it's just because i'm like seduced by the film but it just it feels very unique and original in how it just tells story by kind of just creating a fucking fantasy and creating um a way of telling a moral tale and um and it and it's using historical experience and things like that but, I don't know, there's something so clever and unique about it that it makes sense then that the makeup is going to be unique, that the performances are going to have a unique flair to them. Like when you create a space like that as a filmmaker or as a col- as someone who's creating a collaborative environment, everyone kind of buys into it and they can kind of like contribute something. And I think that's just like a really wonderful way to be a manager and a director really is a fucking manager of uh, of an artistic project and I think that's fucking amazing
2: yeah he he has a wonderful control over each and every one of his visions He, he describes his crew as being a table that there are four legs it's the director the cinematographer the the art department and the wardrobe department and if the four of them are not doing the same job and not working together then it all falls apart and he you know it comes as no surprise that he would have such a clear visual metaphor for what he does
1: all right, final yeah. thoughts, Michael, before we jump into the mailbag here. Really good movie. Glad I watched it. Glad I got bullied into <laughs>
0: it. And I think anything that makes you uh, that, that that remains a fairy tale while talking about the wonder that's still possible um, in our in our deaths and mortalities, I, I find really interesting and really important stuff. Uh, and anything that deals with with learning how to die and thinking about the meaning of death, I'm all in on that. So
2: does it make you want to watch more of his work now that you've kind of cracked the 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 top of it
0: you know what I'll, I'll be honest still still probably still know on some of the stuff um you will not find me watching the shape of water uh anytime soon um may but maybe like uh oh, oh god what's the one you had mentioned the title before that he says is like the devil's spiritual backbone. cousin to this yeah. one so so i, I will start there i'll say this has made me want to watch devil's backbone i will see where the, D- that's the a great one that's
2: there. kind of like the ghost story to this one's fairy tale um, and cool. it also it takes place five years before this movie and was made exactly five years before this movie like he he deliberately mm. spaced them out and there are actually yeah. two characters from devil 's backbone that are that are found dead in the forest in pan 's labyrinth um, for keen eyed viewers um, yeah, and so. apparently
1: there 's supposed to be a third right the, there 's like a, a tr- like a kind of spiritual trilogy that he 's been promising devil 's backbone pan 's labyrinth and then a third one is forthcoming correct? I've,
2: um, I've heard stuff like that but he has so many unmade projects that uh, okay. you know he, he, he'll he talk about something and then he'll push the ball forward for a while and you know it's it's tough to get a movie made especially uh, movies as unique and esoteric as his are but um, hopefully uh, he's got a new one coming out this year Nightmare Alley a, a remake of a really really good movie from like 1949. Highly recommend checking out the original uh, in advance of seeing that one if you haven't already um, and yeah I think after the on Oscar for Shape of Water, it, it seems like he has a little bit more freedom. Hopefully he can get a few more things off the ground.
1: Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, let's jump into the mailbag here. Um, if you out there want to contribute, ask us any questions, send us any film recommendations, you can do so by either leaving us a voicemail at one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. 534 8807 That's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. Or you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. We've got a voicemail. Let's roll it. Hey, guys.
2: This is Ernie. I'm on Highlands. California. And I was just wondering, do you think that the film
1: Snowpiercer would have ended better if
2: Chris Evans had taken the mantle and run the train instead of destroying it? Because everybody's going to die now. Everybody's dead. And we just got two survivors walking in the snow. And as far as we know, there's no one else left
1: on Earth. So just wondering what you guys think. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so uh, at the end of Snowpiercer, we talked a little bit about this last week. At the end of Snowpiercer, they blow up the train. You get a couple survivors, at least the only ones that we see at that point. You see this living polar bear off in the distance, and the question is, is is there a little bit of hope? Because it's actually warming outside, so, uh, you know, nature will find a way sort of thing. So maybe there's a hope for humanity, and now this sort of oppressive train system has been derailed. What do you think? Do they die? Like, there's no food. It's a snow-covered fucking mountain that they're on. Like, they don't have any food food i mean maybe they got food back in the train there's
2: food now for the polar bear i mean those 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 guys are <laughs> mean motherfuckers i think that that may be kind of the the final joke of the movie that bong jun ho knows how how vicious polar bears are and it may end on kind of an aesthetically hopeful note but so uh, it's the end I mean, of humanity right so the...
1: just fucking humanity should just kill itself is that yeah, what he's saying if you is stick that...
2: around for the avengers teaser at the end of the snowpiercer <laughs> credits it's just a Uh, a fucking polar bear wandering around with a bloody snout
1: (laughs) yeah yeah but what do we think could Chris Evans' character have taken the mantle um, uh, taken over the train and then somehow ushered in more equality I mean this is like one of the, the great debates that you have between like like a, a a revolutionary type of takeover versus reformism or non-reformist reformism you know does it maintain the apparatus is it is impossible to actually achieve the 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 reforming ends that you may desire to see i don't know what do we, what do we think would that have been a viable option
2: michael what do you think man you didn't get to talk about a uh, snowpiercer with us yet
0: I haven't watched it since I saw it in a movie theater, oh, so okay. I have very limited thoughts on it. Um, sure, uh, I think but I, I think mean, they're all dead, but yeah.
2: <laughs> but I think the the question in general is uh, is one that I'm sure someone such as yourself, concerned with philosophy, is uh, has often considered the notion of like, you know, is it is it worth it to upend uh, uh, a sort of inherently inequitable system? um even though it means not just massive collateral damage but within this specific example yeah. you know quite potentially the the extinction of humanity um or yeah. can uh, maybe what austin you had mentioned before can the master's tools be used in some way to uh to deconstruct the master's house and and would chris evans be able to have guided that yeah
0: i don't know i think like nature is fine if 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 the option is like a shitty unjust world or you just blow it all the bits and let the animals cook why not Um, there's (laughs) ecosystems of predated human beings. They will be around after us. I'm not, I'm not precious about the, uh, the, the continuation of humanity if it's in an
2: oppressive form. That's another thing that the call kind of presupposes that human life is inherently more valuable than, than that of other species or or the well-being of the planet itself.
0: Would you rather have shit for breakfast or just not have breakfast? You know, that's
2: that's another good question.
1: I think we're going to be here all night,
0: fellas. My parents would always say that. they
1: meant it. All right. Let's do one more. This is an email real quick from Matt who wants to talk about Apocalypse Now. Hey, show me the meaning crew, I had a question about Apocalypse Now. Leaping off Raymond's comment about Alien, also debuting in 1979, do you think there might be a worthwhile comparison between Kurtz and the Xenomorph? In his I've Seen Horrors monologue, Kurtz ends on the need for using primordial instincts to kill without feeling passion or judgment, because it's judgment that defeats us. This notion echoes Ash's admiration of the Alien as a survivor unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of mortality. Further, the thing Kurtz has become Shifts constantly between lucid moral philosophy and brutal psychopathy. Beyond referencing the xenomorph's shifting form, Ash might describe this oscillation with its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. Was there some latent thought influencing these two figures, or is it just a happy accident? What do you think, Raymond?
2: Um, that's uh, th- that's very insightful. Uh, I think that's a great email. Um, I, I think there is. May, there there may be some universal characteristics between two sort of not necessarily evil archetypes, but in, in the same way that we've discussed the 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 notion of monstrosity in pan's labyrinth that, uh, you know, I don't think the xenomorph and alien is, is like, uh, rubbing its hands together and like, yeah, I'm, I'm out here to kill these guys or whatever. It's, it's working off of instinct. And I think you could maybe make the same argument that, that at a certain point, Kurtz is working off of, uh, some diabolical instinct as well. And if the, uh, if I, I'm sorry, I, I can't remember the name of the, the listener who wrote this in Austin, Oh, Matt, um, and if you're interested in seeing a, a, a much more didactic interpretation of Apocalypse Now in space, I would recommend James Gray's Ad Astra. It is quite literally like basically a, a a fresh adaptation of Heart of Darkness, but it takes place across the solar system. It's it's really really good. I think that movie's still underrated. Yeah, it it, it kind Astra. of I remember kind of came I was and freaked
0: went. out when I saw it and like talked
2: to friends about. It. I was like, that was so good, and they're like, are you sure? I was like, I'm pretty sure. Um, that's a that great would be uh, I think that, that that would give us a lot to chew on for an episode maybe
1: well sweet well let's sign off there let's get out of here thank you so much for tuning in and listening of course we want more of your comments and your thoughts and your critiques and your recommendations call us one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven or email us movies at co. before we get out of here where can people find you on the internet Michael
0: I mostly live at Wisecrack, and when I log out of work, you can find me on Twitter at Michael O'Burns.
1: Yeah, and Raymond.
2: Uh, Yeah, you can find me right here on Show Me the Meaning, and uh, uh, also on uh, the Wisecrack Patreon. uh, Wisecrack.com slash, or what is it? Patreon.com slash Wisecrack. Um, We just did our first Patreon episode there, uh, extending the conversation about Apocalypse Now. Uh, And you can also find me on Twitter and Letterboxd as always. I'm at Crematoria there. And Michael, Thank you so much for joining us today, man. Thank you for having me. I'm glad that I watched this movie. It's expanded my consciousness, and I want to be open to new types of art. So, thank you so much for having me. I just wanted to be the first to thank you. Uh, I'm sure Austin will slide in with another thank you soon. No, he won't.
1: Michael, thank you for joining us so much. We loved having you on. (laughs) We love you, everybody. Find us on Twitter, SMTM underscore POD. Uh, Send us out, Raymond, will you? Oh, sure. Uh,
2: Live from, uh, I guess, the labyrinth underground. (laughs) I'm just trying to work my (laughs) way through this. It's, It's Show Me the Meaning, folks. Have a great night.